Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, Luke Richardson. Luke, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Phil. How are you doing? Really good, really good. You're all rested up from your trip back from Mexico? Nope, but <laughs> that will happen in time. <laughs> I think I'm I'm, I'm running yeah. still on Mexican time, but I, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, Luke has a has a really good story for us today. So uh, without further ado, Luke, go ahead and take it away. Fab. Yes. Excited to share this one with you. It's called The Three and a Half Miracles of Tristan Fairweather, which is a title I look forward, Phil, to seeing you try and squeeze onto a thumbnail for YouTube. The three and a half. The three and we got to do that one more time. Three, the three and a half miracles for of Tristan Fairweather. Of Tristan, oh, excellent. Okay, great. I like it. I like it already. <laughs> okay. Tristan Fairweather was born on the day that the world was supposed to end. 18th of October, 1962, when the USA and the Soviet Union faced off over missiles in Cuba, Tristan arrived early, kicking and screaming into the world. Maybe that was the first miracle of Tristan's life. Well, I'd say half a miracle at least. That said, growing up in the small town of Hastings on England's south coast, Tristan was about as far removed from the USA-USSR relations as you can get. That didn't stop Leonard Brezhnev, the General Secretary of the Soviet Union, announcing his Brezhnev doctrine on the same day that Tristan took his first steps. Nor did it stop Nixon and Brezhnev shaking hands in Washington right at the moment that Tristan's mum turned off the television and announced that, I don't think it's an issue. He will speak when he's ready. A lot of young people have speech problems. Cyril Fairweather, Tristan's father, just grunted in reply. Most of them just grow out of it. That's what the doctor says anyway, his mum continued. For Tristan Fairweather, though, things would be a lot more complicated than that. In addition to his speech difficulties, Tristan Fairweather was one of those young people who always seemed to be at odds with any situation he found himself in. Everything about him just didn't quite fit. His mother would adjust his clothes in an attempt to help them fit his wiry frame, and a few hours later, they would seem to hang loose again in parts and be too tight in others. Tristan's father, Cyril Fairweather, was one of the fishermen who cast their nets in the waters of the English Channel. A seafarer through and through, he was a squat, muscular man with rough, calloused hands the size and shape of the cod that he'd pull from the concrete-coloured water. As General Secretary Brezhnev was awarded the Order of Lenin for his contributions to the Soviet Union in 1977, Cyril Fairweather took his 15-year-old son out on his boat, the Mary Ann, for the first time. You'll captain this boat one day, Cyril said, just like me and my father before. Cyril worked the wheel with one hand and glanced at his son, who was holding on with whitening knuckles. You'll get used to the rocking and rolling. Don't worry about that. Tristan muttered something, but as usual, Cyril couldn't make it out. Tristan looked down at the water, feeling his breakfast move inside him. He thought about all of the times he watched his father and his crew, all wrapped up in their yellow oilskins and thick boots, 
wrestle the squat little boats up the pebbles or down the pebbles and in or out of the small port. Tristan winced as a wave broke over the side of the craft, tilting them to one side. In short, Tristan didn't really like the idea of being a fisherman. You'll get used to it, Cyril said, slapping his son on the back. Tristan staggered forwards, almost tumbling into the water. These seas are in your blood, Cyril continued, just like in mine and my father before. I think you're just a bit nervous. A gurgling noise came from Tristan's throat as he tried to speak. He looked dejected down at the grey water. The truth was, Tristan had no idea how to be part of a fishing crew, let alone captain the ship if he couldn't speak. In a few months you'll finish school, his father continued, and you're going to need to do something, like it or not. You're a fair weather, not some kind of layabout, Cyril's expression darkened. Your mother and I would like for you to keep the family name going, but suppose if you want to do something else, then that's what you'll have to do. But, sure as anything, you ain't doing nothing. That evening, Tristan lay awake in bed and counted down the months. He would leave school in a little over 12 months, and if he didn't have anything to do, the thought stuck like a beach pebble in Tristan's throat. He couldn't swallow or breathe. He was drowning with the thought. The sound of the crashing waves through his window felt like they were pulling him like a noose towards their gloomy depths. Tristan sat bolt upright in his room, breathing heavily. He heard his father snoring through the wall and a car rumble down the cobbles outside. Everything was as it should be. But what Tristan Fairweather didn't know then, what Tristan Fairweather couldn't know then, was that good things were coming. Good things were coming soon. The following day, ambling his way home from school in no kind of hurry, Tristan took a detour down George Street. George Street is one of the town's streets which has retained its historical character. Wooden framed buildings hang over the cobbles and the shops and pubs spill out into the road. The scene was set for the first full miracle of Tristan Fairweather's life. That day, dragging his heels across the cobbles, not relishing the thought of getting home to either reams of homework or helping his mother with some menial task or another, Tristan stopped to look inside one of the shops. Smith's Antiques was the sort of shop that whilst claiming to sell antiques, the stock would probably fall more accurately under the description of junk. Peering in through the greasy glass, Tristan saw the guitar. He gazed curiously at the instrument, his eyes dilating to the size of those of the fish that they pulled out of the water. Through the glass, the guitar seemed to glow, radiating like a halo, as though it contained some kind of magical powers. In something of a trance, Tristan stepped forwards. Before he knew what he was doing, Tristan pushed open the door, the entry bell clanging noisily, and stepped inside. Once inside, the guitar looked even more heavenly. Its pale wood glittered beneath the shop's window lights. Coming! Christian's rapture was broken by a gruff voice coming from the shop's back room. An eel of panic scampered its way up and down Tristan's throat. He spun around, 
and looked at the door behind him, then back at the guitar. He lunged for the door, hoping to get out before the shopkeeper emerged. Not being able to speak properly made something as simple as going into a shop awkward and difficult. Of course, Tristan kept a pad and pen in his pocket for emergencies, but such interactions bordered on the physically painful. Oh, hello, Mr Smith, the shopkeeper said as he stepped out through the curtain which obscured the shop's back room. Tristan froze, then turned. He nodded and smiled. I know you, Mr Smith said. Tristan had seen Mr Smith around the town many times in the past. He was a grey-haired man whose chin nestled in a beard the colour of England's winter clouds. You're the fairweather boy, Smith boomed, pointing a thick finger at Tristan. Tristan nodded. Ah, yes, I heard you wasn't much of a talker. What brings you in here today? Tristan glanced at the door behind him, on the verge of bolting, but something kept him strong. His eyes returned to the guitar in the window. Oh yeah, she's a beauty, isn't she? Smith said, bustling across the shop and sweeping the guitar up from his stand. A Washburn D10S. This, all spruce and mahogany. This is a wonderful instrument. It'll give you great sound for years and years. Smith strummed the instrument and a tonal yet jarring sound swept through the shop. Tristan eyed the guitar hungrily. Give her a try, Smith said nonchalantly, handing Tristan the instrument. With shaking hands, Tristan accepted the guitar. One hand curved around the neck, pushing in on the strings, while the other swept down across the strings with the tender touch of autumn's first rain. I can see you've played before, Mr Smith said, stepping back with his hands on his hips. But of course, Tristan hadn't. He'd never even held the instrument, let alone strummed a chord. His hands moved through two or three more instinctive motions, producing a flurry of tuneful notes. Then another sound joined that of the strumming guitar. It was deep. It was tonal. It was a sound that grabbed Tristan by the chest and yanked him around the room. The noise dragged the breath from Tristan's lungs and stripped the focus from his eyes. It took Tristan several long and harmonious seconds to understand what was happening. He was singing. Tristan didn't realise his eyes were closed until he stepped back, reeling almost. His fingers fell from the instrument, curled like the claws of long dead crabs. Mr Smith looked at Tristan, his eyes wide and his mouth open. Keep, keep going, keep playing. Tristan tried to speak, to ask what was going on, but the usual garbled nonsense came from his lips. Don't try to speak, Mr Smith said. Just play. Tristan did. He played and sung. Then he played some more. He lost track of how long he stood in that shop, strumming and singing. When he turned back towards the window, darkness had fallen. All of a sudden, worry struck Tristan. He was expected home hours ago. With hands now shaking, he handed the guitar back to Mr Smith. She's £200, Mr Smith said, predicting Tristan's question. Tristan's shoulders slumped like a car with its tyres slashed. There was no way he could ever afford that. He turned to head out of the door. But listen, 
Mr. Smith said. You're welcome to come back and play any time you want. Tristan turned, his face brightening with a smile. Until she sells, of course. And that was exactly what Tristan did. As autumn turned into winter, he would rush from school to the shop. Every day he would snatch up the guitar and play and sing and sing and play until Mr. Smith shut up for the evening. After that, Tristan would listen to all of the music he could. He would drink it in. By the end of the year, Tristan had taught himself countless chords and committed the words of his favourite songs to memory. But most of all, he would just play and sing. Sometimes the words were just sounds, and other times he would pick apart the chords, rich and beautiful notes by rich and beautiful note. Then, one day, deep in the depths of January, disaster struck. As usual, Tristan counted down the seconds of school. The moment the bell rung, he charged out through the gates and into the driving rain. He barely felt the rain or the cold. Tristan ran on. This was his favourite time of day. His time to play. A few minutes later, his breath coming out in great grey clouds, he swerved into George Street. Water lay thick across the cobbles, causing the occasional grey-coated shopper to pick their way in a zigzag down the street. Tristan didn't care. He splashed through the puddles, sloshing water up over his shoes and trousers. Not looking where he was going, running purely on instinct, Tristan crashed through the shop's front door. The invasion sent the doorbell into a clamouring frenzy. He stood for a moment in the middle of the shop, dripping a puddle onto the carpet, and drew a deep breath. He heard Mr Smith moving somewhere out the back. Having got used to each other, Mr Smith didn't even worry about coming down straight away when Tristan arrived. Tristan shook himself in the way a wet dog might, then stepped towards the window display. He reached out with muscle memory for the place that the guitar normally sat, fingers curling through the air. Tristan blinked, and suddenly his eyes snapped into focus. The place where the guitar was normally mounted, right in the shop's window, was empty. Even the stand had been removed. A bolt of fear shot down through Tristan's spine. It felt like the winter sea was lashing at his bare skin. He looked around with panic-stricken eyes. Maybe Mr Smith had just moved the guitar to another display, or maybe he'd taken it upstairs to be cleaned. Tristan's mind grasped at the delicate straws of hope as the obvious reason that the guitar had gone solidified in his mind. Tristan tried to shout for the shopkeeper. Yet again, the exact words he wanted to say flashed through his mind, but he couldn't form them on his lips. His mouth stumbled across the sounds, emitting little more than an incomprehensible gurgling. Mr Smith appeared through the curtain and stepped into the shop. Tristan gurgled again, his tongue as useful as a clump of seaweed. He pointed at the window, rainwater dripping from his sodden clothes, I'm sorry, Mr Smith said, hands up in a gesture of apology. The guitar's gone. Sold this afternoon. The words hit Tristan like a twelve-foot wave. He shrank inside himself, curling in on himself. He felt as though he wanted just to curl up and lie there until the end of time. I didn't want to sell it, but the man offered the asking price straight up. Couldn't turn that down, Mr Smith said. 
got bills to pay and all that. Anger and disappointment tingling his eyes, Tristan turned and darted for the door. He slunk his way home. His feet felt as though they weighed a thousand tons. That was his chance gone. His one opportunity at something other than the impossible dream of running his father's crew. It just swirled away like water down the drain. At the top of the road, Tristan paused and looked out at the sea. The clouds hung so heavy that he couldn't even see where the sea became sky. Like a cruel reminder of his impossible situation, the brightly coloured fishing boats sat like washed up flotsam on the stones. Tristan silently let himself into the house. He placed his school bag on the floor and padded towards the stairs. Tristan, is that you? Cyril's gruff voice echoed from the kitchen. Tristan sighed. Right now, he wanted nothing more than to climb into bed and try and forget the day. Come in here for a moment, Cyril said, clearly knowing Tristan wouldn't answer. Tristan froze, his foot on the bottom step. He looked in the direction of his bedroom door. In his mind, he was already there, nestled beneath the covers. Mm, There's something I need to talk to you about. Tristan closed his eyes. He really wasn't ready to listen to another lecture from his father about his future. Tristan knew that he was leaving school in less than six months from now, and he knew his options were sparse. Huffing out his frustration. After all, 95% of teenage communication is non-verbal. Tristan turned and walked with the haste of a death row inmate towards the kitchen. Tristan pushed open the door and lifted his head to face his father. He froze in his tracks. His mother and father stood behind the kitchen table. Both were uncharacteristically smiling from ear to ear. Then Tristan noticed something on the tabletop, a tan-coloured guitar case. The moment hung for longer than any moment has a right to. Tristan looked from his father to his mother, then to the case. He tried to subdue the excitement which flared within him. He tried to ask what was going on, but all that issued from his mouth was a jumble of sounds. Mr Smith from that shop on George Street came to see us, Cyril said. He said you'd been going there every day after school. I did wonder why you'd been coming home late, his mother cut in. I thought maybe you had a girl you'd been spending all your time with. Mr Smith says you've been going there to play this guitar, Cyril pointed a thick finger at the instrument. Is that true? Tristan snapped his mouth shut and nodded. Mr Smith went on to say that you're really good. Never heard anything like it, he says. So me and your mother, we've bought you this guitar. Now Tristan was amazed. He gripped hold of the chair for support. He tried to ask how they could possibly afford £200, just like that. Don't you worry about it, Cyril said, for once understanding his son's mumblings. Mr Smith and me have come to an agreement. Tristan and his father locked eyes for a moment. But listen to me, lad. If you're as good as this Mr Smith thinks you are, then you take this seriously, okay? You're going to play as often as you can, every day. Then, when you finish school, I'm going to talk to the landlord down at the Dolphin, and you'll get a job playing on the weekends. Tristan nodded, entranced. This was more than he'd ever ever hoped for. Not only did he have his guitar, 
but his dad had worked out a way for him to stay off the boat. For now. Not quite knowing what to do first, Tristan hugged his parents quickly, then set about removing the guitar from her case. He turned the instrument in his hands. She glimmered and gleamed more brightly than a prized jewel. In one slick motion, Tristan swung the strap over his shoulder and picked at the strings. Six months later, coincidentally on the same day that Soviet forces entered Afghanistan, Tristan sat in the corner of the dolphin, looking out at the assembled crowd. True to his word, his father had spoken with the landlord, and Tristan now had the job of entertaining the rowdy mix of fishermen, townspeople and tourists visiting the seaside for the weekend. Glasses of ale clinked as beer was poured and toasts were made. Tristan took a deep breath. The air smelled of booze and cigarette smoke. He looked down at the guitar, his head hunched forwards so as to block out the assembled crowd. He chose a song, one of his own, and strummed the first chord. The guitar rang through the pub loud and true, like a church bell on a Sunday morning. The crowd quietened and many turned to look at Tristan, who sat on the makeshift stage in the corner. He strummed the second chord, then felt the words of the song bubble up inside him. He sung the first note in perfect, rich, steady harmony. Now the crowd gazed on in silence. Only ever used to hearing Tristan stutter his way through the simplest of sentences, his singing was something else entirely. Many watched open-mouthed, others rocked back on their heels in amazement. The bar staff even stopped serving and stood stationary, as though honouring his performance. Tristan strummed the final chord and then let the sound of the washburn fade. The crowd erupted into a cacophony of whoops and hollers. Beer sloshed from the glasses as men leapt from their seats to applaud. Several thick hands slapped Tristan on the back. Tristan glanced up at the crowd and saw his dad standing near the bar. His weathered face split into one of the widest smiles Tristan had ever seen. That's my boy, Cyril Fairweather muttered to anyone that would hear. The summer passed like none that Tristan had ever experienced before. During the weekdays he would play for hours on end, writing new songs and learning those that the crowd at the Dolphin had requested the previous weekend. Then... When Friday and Saturday rolled around, he would take his place on the makeshift stage and play all night. Like something of a miracle, Tristan's speech began to improve too. He was still slow, and if he rushed things he would mumble, but now he found that if he imagined the words as though they were the lyrics of a song, he could generally get them out. As summer turned into autumn, Tristan's tune selection grew and so did the crowds that assembled to see him. He enraptured everyone with ballads from generations past. He riled them with melodies of freedom and fortune. And he warmed even the coldest man's heart with tunes of love and loss. At the end of one such evening, a figure cut through the crowd. Tristan had seen the man listening from the back but had paid him little attention. He was probably just one of the tourists who, after ambling down the seafront, found themselves at the Dolphin. 
It wasn't until the man stepped up to the stage and held out a business card that Tristan really paid attention. The name's Felix White, he said, an American accent cutting through the bar's heavy air. I'm from Big Town Records. I'd like to talk to you about recording an album. A heartbeat later, Tristan sat in a recording studio in London. With his trusty washburn on his knee, he played more smoothly than ever before. In the intervening months, Tristan had worked with Felix White, who turned out to be something of a big shot in the music business on both sides of the Atlantic, and who had chosen ten of Tristan's tracks to record for a debut album. Felix had also talked about a world tour. You're a natural performer. The crowds are going to love you. I can see you from L.A. to Sydney. This is going to be big. Felix had filled his head with ideas of fame. The crowds are going to love this. This is just what the world needs right now. And Felix had talked of fortune far beyond anything Tristan had previously imagined. You name it and you'll get it. Anything you want, my kid. For the album... White had selected many of Tristan's more upbeat tracks. In these songs, Tristan sung passionately about liberty, about fortune, about bravery. He sung about coming together to make a better world for yourself and the others around you. There, in the booth, that day, Tristan played and sung them all crisp and clean. To White's surprise, the album was recorded in a little over two days and ready to release by the end of the week. And then, as quickly as it had come about, in a short matter of weeks, it was over. No more talk of world tours, no more mention of loving crowds or promise of wealth and fortune. I'm sorry, son, White said. Both men sat in White's office, overlooking the Thames in London. That's the thing with this game. Some things just work out. Others don't. We tried. We made a great album. But maybe the world just isn't ready for Tristan Fairweather. Tristan looked down at his hands on the table in front of him. In something of a daze, he stood and wandered out through the office. On the train home, Tristan flicked through an abandoned newspaper. Leonard Brezhnev was dead and had been replaced as the leader of the Soviet Union by Yuri Andropov. Don't worry about it, Cyril Fairweather said, watching his son slump dejectedly at the kitchen table. There'll be other chances. I know, I know, Tristan said, his speech now slow and measured, but perfectly understandable. I just thought this was the the, the one, you know? Then, with winter biting and the economy on the turn, the crowds at the Dolphin dried up too. You'll love it. Just wait until we get out there, Cyril Fairweather said, walking Tristan towards the Mary Ann, before dawn on a drizzly Tuesday morning. This stuff is in your blood. Tristan lumbered awkwardly towards the boat, his feet heavy and cumbersome in the thick rubber boots. He scrambled up the ladder as best he could and helped his father and the crew prepare the boat for the day ahead. While Tristan worked the days aboard the ship, bringing in fish to keep their family afloat, his third miracle was taking place. Bring her in now, Tristan Fairweather says, skillfully navigating the Mary Ann up onto the stones of Hastings Beach. Over 20 years have passed since his attempt at musical stardom, but Tristan doesn't mind. The world has changed too, 
The Soviet Union is no more, with the falling of the Berlin Wall a few months before, and Europe is united again. Although such news makes little difference to a fisherman in a small town, Tristan watched the footage with a detached sense of hope. The Marianne grumbles up onto the beach, and Tristan sees his father standing on the shore. Although retired from the hard graft of captaining the boat, Cyril Fairweather can't help but assist Tristan bringing in the catch each day. The old man still offers advice about where to go and find the best cod and haddock, as though it's Tristan's first day on the job. Two hours later, Tristan's back in the dolphin, at his normal seat, a pint of brown ale on the table beside him, and the washburn in his hands. The gig goes as they have for the last countless years. He plays a mixture of his own tunes, with some of the regulars' old favourites. At the end of the set, Tristan notices an unfamiliar face cut towards him through the crowd. That's nothing unusual. Tourists still stumble upon the pub and lap up Tristan's soft touch on the strings and the tone of the guitar. Tristan Fairweather, the man says, his voice tinged with a German accent. Hearing his name, Tristan looks up from packing his things away. But yes, that's me, Tristan says inquisitively. Tristan examines the man. He's well-dressed and probably around Tristan's own age. The man swings a bag from his back and flips open the top. He pulls out a vinyl record and passes it to Tristan. On the cover of the record is a picture of the younger Tristan posing with the same guitar as he now holds. Tristan turns the thing in his hands as though handling a precious artefact. How did you get this? Tristan says, or lacing his voice. I thought they only sold about 50. Oh no, that is where you are wrong. The man leans back on his heels. In my country, they sold hundreds, thousands even. Tristan looks up at the man, his eyebrows raised in confusion. I think I shall buy you a drink, the German says, pointing at Tristan's empty glass. Then we will talk. And talk they do. Unbeknown to Fairweather, a copy of his album made it through Europe and across the Iron Curtain. There, Fairweather's songs of freedom and love and justice had resonated with a whole generation of young people. That evening, amid the Dolphins' late-night drinkers, the German describes how, as blocks were torn from the Berlin Wall and people fled through to meet long-lost loved ones, they chanted Fairweather's lyrics. Tristan and his father listen in enraptured silence, their glasses of beer abandoned in front of them. The German finishes his story and takes a sip from his drink. I want you to come and perform a show in Berlin, the German says, outlining his plan. I'm in, Tristan replies immediately, then points to his father. But he's coming too. Naturally, the German says, shrugging. I'll get it arranged. A month later, Tristan and Cyril are sitting in the dressing room of the Palace de Republic concert venue in Berlin. It's a bit different from the Dolphin, right? Tristan says, nodding towards a glitzy mirror on the wall. Cyril mumbles something from the corner, clearly uncomfortable with the suit and tie he's wearing. They're ready for you. A stage manager appears at the door. 
Tristan picks up his guitar and heads for the door. Stepping out from the dressing room, he hears, for the first time, the roar of assembled people. He swallows, but the pebble of anxiety is again lodged in his throat. He takes a few steps towards the stage and the roaring of the crowd intensifies. Tristan can also hear the chanting of one of his songs. It sounds strange and ethereal. He's never heard someone else singing his songs before. Tristan walks up a set of stairs and into a spotlight. The crowd noise grows to a bellow. Tristan cups his hand above his eyes and looks around the largest auditorium he's ever seen. He steps up to the microphone and strums his first chord. Still awestruck from the crowd, Tristan Fairweather staggers back into the dressing room. He collapses into a chair and looks at himself in a mirror. His father sits beside him. Having watched the show from the side of the stage, he is as amazed as Tristan. The two men stare at each other for long moments. Then there's a knock at the door. A man enters without waiting for a response. Tristan looks up, expecting it to be their host. But it's not. It takes Tristan several moments to remember who the guy is. When he does, the realisation strikes him like a physical blow. He sits up in the chair, suddenly alert. It's Felix White, the guy from the record label all those years ago. A great show tonight, Felix says. I'm pleased you finally got to face your crowd. Tristan stutters like he used to all those years ago. Felix takes off his hat and places it on the desk. Tristan realises the man isn't dressed like he used to be. He's smarter, suave almost. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you deserve to know a few things. I enjoyed working with you, Tristan. You're a good man. What do you mean? Tristan says, his curiosity now almost to the levels of suspicion. Felix removes a card from the inside of his jacket and hands it across to Tristan. Tristan accepts the card and turns it in his hands. There's a name printed on the card, but it's not Felix White. And beneath the name on the card, it states that he's an operative of the Central Intelligence Agency. CIA, Tristan mutters. I don't understand. This isn't... Ignore the name, Felix says, pointing to the card. I've had so many names now that it doesn't really matter what you call me. Felix will do. I'm pleased to tell you that your voice helped reunite the world. Tristan's tongue feels thick in his mouth. You mean this was some kind of setup? We'd known for a long time that any revolution had to come from within, Felix explains. The people had to want it. We tried so many things to get the youth across the wall on our side. Felix lowers himself onto the edge of a sofa. We tried broadcasting radio programmes from planes, dropping leaflets over the wall, spreading the world of what a united future might hold, but nothing had enough, enough passion. Tristan blinks several times, still struggling to believe what he's being told. Then, someone suggested that music might be the way to do this. To start with, it sounded like a crazy idea. A CIA-sponsored artist who the youth of the Soviet Union would find some affinity with. But the more we thought about it, the more we worked it through, the better the idea became. 
Then we just have the problem of who. Tristan points at his chest. But why me? We needed someone raw, someone authentic, someone who was as far away from America as possible. When I first heard you that night in the Dolphin, I just knew you were the one. My album? Tristan asks. It was never for sale in most of the United Kingdom or America. Sure, we placed a couple of copies in the shops you might visit, but nowhere else. But tens of thousands of copies were sent over the wall. Felix glances at his watch. I've got to go, I'm afraid, but I wanted to talk to you. You deserve to know how much you've done. Felix stands and picks up his hat. Don't ever forget it. Your voice reunited the world. Felix walks to the door, then turns and looks at Tristan and his father one more time. Silence swells in the dressing room. Tristan Fairweather looks at his reflection in the mirror. Cue miracle number three. You know, I know a guy, Felix says. You could record a new album, do some concerts across Germany and the former Soviet countries. You'd go down a storm, make some really good money, travel the world too. You could do it properly this time. Tristan Fairweather turns to face the man. Although looking up at Felix White, all Tristan can see is his father grasping the wheel of the Mary Ann and his grandfather before that. No thanks, Tristan says, his voice now as clear as the tone of his washburn. I've got fish to catch. There you are. It's good. There you have like it. That. <laughs> the three and a half miracles of yeah, a good Tristan story. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're worth three, three and a half three and a half. <laughs> well, the, I guess the half would be right at the end of him deciding to be a, to be a fisherman. Yeah, I'm not. It depends how you allocate there's the miracles. A no, there's a no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. No, that's good. I really, I really enjoyed that. I had a good. couple of. Uh... So I'm assuming it's fiction. So before you even ask the question, I'm assuming that's all fiction. Well, well, or is it not? There are elements of that that are true in that there is right. i mean you don't know exactly how much there, there's various different stories i've i've taken the inspiration from there one of them um mm -hmm. was a was a documentary and a book called finding sugar man or searching for sugar man i don't know if you've heard of it um no i haven't it was a similar idea in that there was a, it was an american artist called rodriguez who who was a i think it was based in detroit or chicago somewhere like that and he worked on a building site and he was your your average working class guy and what he didn't realize is that he was a big hit in apartheid south africa for the same sort of reason mm. so look that up if you're interested and the other one is um there is i have read this these ideas about the cia and other organizations similar ones around the world using the arts in order to push their agenda in other countries and i just thought what a great idea you know that they that they're they're, all, they're the record label pushing these these songs about independence and work it you know uh, sort of the democratic values in a song pushed to um that sort of market and i just thought that's a, that was a great idea that i, that I ran with in that story yeah, that was really great. Uh, there was a guy I used to live, I was born in Panama and then lived there for, I guess, about eight years altogether. The first three years, I don't remember since I was born there, but um, there was a guy, uh, I forget his name. Kurt Muse was his name. 
And I'm, he was a CIA operative, but I didn't know this at the time, but there were during the, the war of uh, 1989 and during the, around Christmas time, that was, that was Manuel Noriega. I don't know if you remember him. He was the dictator then, but um, the U S came in and, and took, basically took him out. But pr- prior to the war, he was, he was broadcasting clandestine radio broadcasts against um, against Noriega, and they were constantly he was constantly having to move around and make these broadcasts, and they were constantly trying to find him and catch him, and they ended up catching him. They ended up catching him and locking him in a Panamanian prison that was absolutely brutal, and uh, all that whole time he was being marketed, or at least everybody thought he was just a regular. American that was living in Panama. He was a civilian. Nobody said he was in the CIA. I found that out. I found that out roughly 12 years later when I was running my business in Virginia and he happened to be, and I I ran into him because I went to a place called Instaprints to print some brochures. And then I came face to face with Kurt Muse. You're going to have to tell this. It's one of your future stories. (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting that that all happened, but he but he was part of the CIA and doing these clandestine broadcasts, which are basically similar. I mean, it wasn't yeah. musical form, but it was basically talking about, you know, how oppressive the government of, you know, Noriega's government is. And people were latching onto that and they were hearing it. And he was, mm. he was actually even interrupting speeches like the, the speeches by Noriega. They had the enough uh, radio equipment to do that, I guess. But, but it was a, it was a cat and mouse game for him. But I, that, but that no, reminds me, it reminded me of your story. There's a lot of examples, if you look into it, of, of things that have happened in that. Have you seen the film Argo or heard of the film Argo? Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't I haven't seen it or maybe so I've seen cl- bits of this it. This is but... a similar thing that they um, that they need to extract some people from Iran after the revolution there. The revolution or what? Um, mm-hmm. And so they set up a film. They set up a fake film filming on location in Iran and go there with the TV crew. And then when they leave, they come out with 10 more people than they went in with um, because these people are right. they're like the old ambassadors and whatever from that region or something like that. I can't remember. It was a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. But this this whole idea I absolutely love of of something it's supposed to be something, but it's really something else. And and, and sort of particularly yeah. that, that's that era, that Soviet era with in the 80s and early 90s. Well, the 70s and 80s that I think is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There, I have a couple of things I wanted to mention about your story. I took a couple of notes. Um, I like the your use of uh, simile and metaphor. Like there's a couple like the I could picture there was a time where you had the people zigzagging through the through the puddles like that. I could really picture that in my mind. I thought that was really good because I could you can see people trying to avoid stepping in the so, you know, you kind of get a sense for how much <laughs> yeah. rain you know, that they're getting, which, which is, which is a really unique way of showing that. But it, re- it also reminded me of, I don't know if you've, you've like the, the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that he wrote that book in, you know, behind the Iron Curtain in prison. And, you know, they, he, it was cobbled together and then they were literally passing it around. Like somebody would, would take it and you know, it was a long book and they take it and they'd read it all overnight, read it really <laughs> fast. And then they would send it to somebody else. And that, you know, there was a Pulitzer Prize winning book that uh, was I'll have to check that out. something yeah. that was written and it, and it was written into in a situation where it was illegal. Like if he got caught with it, you know, he'd likely be put to death. So the stuff that he was saying in there. And um, but I think that was really. Um, and the other thing that made me think about with your story is that you don't know, you don't always know what your impact really is. 
like as human beings, we don't always know what our impact is, whether it's, whether it's good or good or bad. It's like, sometimes you don't, you, you don't, you might think that you really have no impact on the world. Um, but that might be totally untrue. You might not realize all the ways that you're impacting uh, mm. the world, hopefully for the good. And I but also want to think about obviously this. I also wanted to play with the idea there of, of sort of anti-fame, you know, because that, that fame can yeah. be quite an aspiration in our world. Can't it? People were like, yes, I'll be famous. I'll be right. rich. I'll be this. But for him to say, actually hanging out with my dad in this small town on the English coast is, is great. That's all I need. That's enough. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah, and I really like that idea. Th- that's, th- that's the half miracle or that should be one of the miracles. Yeah. Maybe right? there's more than three and a half. Maybe we can go through. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it sounded great as a title because you're like, well, why is there half? How's half a miracle? You know? <laughs> I, I also like how he progressed as a, as a character, right. As a person, right. You know, he was having trouble speaking and, you know, he has he had trouble relating to his father. Uh, there were mm. so many things that he, you know, he had, and, and through the course of the story, uh, he got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, you know, and, and I think that I heard the saying once that says people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in a decade. Mm. And I think that's. I think that's really true. Like people, you know, let's say you go, you, I'm going to go to the gym, right? I'm, I'm out of shape and I want to get into shape. So I go to the gym for like a year. And then after the year, I'm like, well, you know, I don't really look that much different. You know, I don't, you know, whatever it's, I'm just going to quit. But if I did it for 10 years, you know, how, how much, or if I was going to start a business, you know, you can apply this to just about anything. Yeah. How much different or, does it look or your, in 10 years? Your, your, um, your property that we talked about last time, your fields and your garden and your bushes, you know, if you'd have gone, Oh, I've done this for six months, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right. It needs to be done for five years, doesn't it? Or two or three years at least to see the, to see the the seasons and all of that. So yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, I have a kiwi vine that I planted 14 years ago. I'm sorry, 13 (laughs) years ago. It's, it just started bearing fruit like a lot this year. (laughs) So (laughs) gosh, over 10 yeah. years yeah. yeah no that that was a struggle with that one to fit it in the time i think because it's such a big story like it's a lifetime isn't it i think this is the one of all yeah. the ones i've done so far this is the one that could be a novel i think yeah absolutely well i, I very much enjoyed the story luke thank you so much um anyway so thank you so much for listening to thriller vault and uh hopefully we'll see you next week be sure to like subscribe and uh, please share the podcast and the show 